Now, we all fear something, don't we? I think I fear probably most of all uh, my reflection in the mirror as I wake up in the morning. But fear drives us all, doesn't it, to a degree. For some of us, it will be the fear of failure, hence why we work so hard during the week. For some of us, it might be the fear of failure as uh, we exhaust ourselves trying to be the perfect parents, which we'll never be. But what do you fear? Perhaps you fear uh, being found out about something. Perhaps you fear being alone. Perhaps you fear being insignificant. Oh, you may even fear being poor, losing your job. We all fear something. In a sense, it's the mark of humanity. In fact, Benjamin Disraeli, the, the former leader of the House of Commons about 120 years ago, once wrote this, fear, it makes us feel our humanity. Because we all fear something. And even if we spend our lives and our income trying to suppress that fear, maybe even to deny that fear, we all fear something. But interestingly, the message of the Bible, and very very much more specifically here in Isaiah 43, is this. That if we begin to fear God rightly, appropriately, and we'll come to see what that is in a moment, if we fear him then all other fears subside. (laughs) Now, the fear of God is not the terrifying, heart-stopping fear that some caricature it to be. That's more Islamic than biblical. Now, the fear of God that we see in the Bible is more, more a recognition of who God is and who we are relative to him. It's saying, I am not God and you really are God. That's the fear of God. Now here at Christchurch Hillsville, we've been looking at this little series um, of five extracts out of this book called Isaiah. Why? It was written 700 years before the historical man Jesus Christ came and walked on this earth. So surely you're thinking, well, this is totally irrelevant then, isn't it, to us today? But commonly, it's actually known as the fifth Gospel, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This is known as the fifth because much of what Isaiah says or prophesies, God gives him to prophesy, much of it is quoted in the Gospels. It is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That is what I think Isaiah writes, whispers the truths partially that were true for the initial readers but even more true for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. What we're reading here helps us understand more clearly who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So what have we looked so far? Just because some of you guys here haven't been over the last few weeks, I thought it'd be good to look back a little bit and then we'll get to what we're looking at today. So we began a few weeks ago looking at Isaiah 40. You don't have to turn there. Basically, it was where God is recognised as the awesome creator God. He's powerful. He's huge. He's to be rightly fit. We're like grass, it says. We wither, we fall. It's a chapter, I guess, summarised, of humbling perspective. Then we turn turn to chapter 1. And all of us remember that because it was very, very sobering. And uh, it, it was a kind of a reality check. Please do listen to the talks if you want to. They're on podcasts, they're on websites and and all that kind of stuff. In Isaiah though, in Isaiah chapter 1, painful though it was to hear, God lovingly warns his people that they had turned their backs on him. 
Oh, in very obvious ways in Isaiah 1. They built all these idols to worship him. And of course, we're at that point saying, well, I don't do that. That's not common in Earlsfield, is it? To build a wooden idol or a bit of a metal idol and start bowing down to them. But what is an idol? An idol is something that, that we create that gives us a sense of purpose, safety or security. I wonder whether, you know, some of us look at our jobs like that. Or maybe even our houses like that. Our, our relationships like that. And they are, to a degree. I'm not saying they're bad things. They're wonderful, good things. But the question is, will those things truly keep us safe? See, whether our idols are made of wood... And we bow down before them to, and they give us a little bit of purpose and security. Or our idols are made of metal and they have four wheels and they take us over all the speed bumps in Earlsfield. Neither will count at all when we take our last breath. An idol cannot save you for heaven. But we do place around ourselves, I'm guilty of this, we all are, a, a number of things as kind of protections, don't we? To make us, give us a sense of purpose, of, of safety. And in Isaiah 1, God very lovingly reminds us and warns us, don't turn your back on me. Don't make good things, essentially God things. He says again and again, don't rebel. Whether that's in hostile rebellion, God, I don't want anything to do with you, or in that very middle-class British way, that kind of cool indifference. I'll park you on the mantelpiece and wait for Christmas. God is perfectly just, as we see in Isaiah 1. And, and, and we ignore him, and the consequences are very sobering. Do read that chapter if you like. So there was this harsh warning, but the following week was wonderful. And I did tell everyone who came that week, please, please, don't, don't stop there. Come back, because Isaiah 53 was the most beautiful, comforting words from our loving Heavenly Father. Because we know that God knows us. He knows we're all going to turn our backs on Him. He knows we're going to rebel. And he, and he knows the justice that He has to exert upon us. If He wasn't just, we'd be cross with that, because we love justice. So what does he do? Well, he should punish us. That would be right and fair and appropriate. But no, once again, I guess we, we sometimes caricature God in that way. No, in his infinite love, he does everything necessary to save us if we would only trust him. Where our objects of worship fail, he provides one who absolutely never failed. And Isaiah speaks of a servant that God will send, who will suffer in the place of people who have turned their backs against God and take all the justice that we deserve, that I deserve, on himself. And whose perfect, spotless life can be counted as ours. It's essentially a swap. And it's talking about who? Jesus. Although it's 700 years, written 700 years before Jesus came, every, every promise of Isaiah 53 comes true in Christ. Jesus was the suffering servant of that chapter. And that brings us to our passage today. And Isaiah is simply saying, as a result of all that we've looked at before, don't be afraid. 
Do not fear. That's, that's the repetition. It's the only instruction in the whole passage. You have no reason to fear, he says, if you fear God. That is, if you have a right view of God, if you trust God. Why? Well, it says, because God has done it, and we'll see that in a moment. He's done everything so that you can live without fear. For even the greatest fear of death itself has been extinguished by Christ. And that is the big difference between the Christian faith and every other religion, every other worldview that you may know and think about. Christianity is a done, not a do-it religion. It's not a way of salvation that you've got to, you've got to work really hard at and, and kind of then you'll be all right with, you, with God. No. It's not a promise of, oh, we'll give you a bit of power and you can work with that and then you'll be all right with God. No. It's not a religion that says to some of us, you middle class chaps, you're all right, you're very nice to your neighbours, you help old grannies across the road, but you're not as bad as those people. Those people, they won't be with God and you will be with God. No. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. Christianity is a call to trust in what God has done, finished, completed through his work in his son Jesus Christ on the cross, who took a penalty that I deserve. In my place. We used a big long word last week. It was penal substitutionary atonement. And that simply means this. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore a penalty. It was penal. And it was substitutionary. It was in my place. I deserved it. You deserved it. But he took it on himself. And it was an atonement. That is, it made me right with God if I would trust in him. It is done. Not a do-it religion. God is responsible in Jesus for my salvation and yours if you would trust in him. But it is hard, isn't it? Because you love to feel that you can do something. That you can contribute. But it doesn't matter whether you have this tiny, tiny faith, which is what we've been praying for Jason today. That he would grow and have a faith in Jesus Christ, however tiny. Or whether you've got a huge faith in God. God is the one who's done the work. The strength comes from him. Salvation is not dependent on how much you believe or what you have done. It depends on whether you trust in God in his done work. And that is what we've been praying for Jason. And continue to pray that he will grow up and one day trust. No, not in himself. Not in those chiseled looks like his father. <laughs> he will not trust in the fact that he can cycle up a mountain more quicker than anyone else that I know. He will not trust in any of the good things and blessings that he has given apart from one blessing and that is Jesus Christ. That he will trust in him and in him alone. Now, can we trust God then? Is he really trustworthy? Or should God's people just for a little bit? Is, is, are these instructions in Isaiah 43 actually, you know... Are they kind of too much? Do not fear? Let's see. 
Let's get our heads into Isaiah 43. First point, they're going to go quickly, so don't panic. We'll get there. Fear not, I've redeemed you and I love you, verse 1 to 7. It's, it's an amazing chapter, this. Let me give you a bit of context, though, if I can. The story is like this. God's people, who they're being spoken to here through Isaiah, they're scared, they're petrified. Why? Because they know another nation called Babylon are coming. That God is going to send them in his judgment and it's going to be awful. And we know in history that they did come. And we know the date, it was 586 BC and Jerusalem was sacked. And it was awful. God's people were foolish. They ignored the warnings to turn back to God. They refused to listen. And so God is reminding them here in Isaiah 43 uh, of who he is. That they would one day listen. Isaiah 43 actually begins, if you remember, about like, um, chapter 40. Very similarly. Look at verse 1 if you can. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have summoned you by name. You are mine. If Isaiah 40 was picturing God in this huge, magnificent splendour, awesome grandeur, the scale is massive. It's the same here in Isaiah 43. But now we see tenderness. It's personal. It's loving. Look at the words God has created. He's formed. Words come really from a, a kind of the, like the master craftsman who's made a beautiful vase or a, a carving and he's holding it in his hands and going, wow. I love this. And that tenderness continues as God says to his frightened people. Look what he says, fear not. Fear not. But they've got every reason to fear. And you're thinking, that's that's kind of a a natural thing for them to feel. The Babylonians come. Now think of the the, the worst fear that you have if you're a parent or of your loved ones. What would that be? Multiply that infinitely and you still haven't probably got to the Babylonians coming. It was the most awful predicament, but God says in that situation, fear not. Why? Look, for I've redeemed you. But he hasn't. And that's really strange. Because if you look at the words there, he's speaking in the past tense, but but God hasn't redeemed them at this stage. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, the Babylonians come in, they take them off down to Babylon. It's pretty awful, thousands killed. And, but he hasn't redeemed them. He hasn't brought them back. He hasn't saved them. So how can he say, I've redeemed you? Because God can speak like this because of his character. It's called a certain past. When God promises something because of his character, he can say with absolute certainty, I have redeemed you. Because a day will come when he will. And a day did come. He will protect and rescue and redeem his people. They are his. And as he says, he summoned them by name. That is, he knows them individually. He's not distant. There's an intimacy here. Look, when God says something, his track record is that he never, ever, ever will let you down. And my question is, I guess, at the beginning here, Can your idols say that? Can your idols say that? But please know, God doesn't say, fear not. Life's going to be an absolute doddle now. Now look at verse 2. See, God's people are not immune from sufferings that are inevitable in life. Whether it's cancer coming along, or you lose your job, or you lose a loved one, whatever it may be. 
No one is immune from those realities. More than that, everyone will one day stand before God. Uh, He speaks of fire in verse 2, and judgment sometimes is described in that way. We will all stand before God one day, and we breathe our last. And if God has promised that to be so, and demonstrated through his son defeat of death, well, you kind of wonder if, if there is life after the grave, and God has said that is so. Who are you to say there isn't? Are you going to hedge your life on that not being the case? So God acknowledges here that that life is hard at times, but he doesn't promise immunity. I I think you'll see that. But he does promise security to those who recognize him. That is, if you see in those words, you know, he promises to go through the waters and the fire. He says, I'll I'll be with you. You will not be burned, he says in verse 2. There's a story in the Bible, actually, just a couple of um, books along, in the, book, in the story of uh, Daniel. Now, that is actually occurring in Babylon. There's three guys called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in that story, they, they, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, very scary man, builds an idol of himself and says, you've got to bow down and worship me. And three guys who follow God said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so, as we know in history, and you can go to the British Museum and see engravings about it, these three men went into a fiery furnace, because that's where they were thrown by King Nebuchadnezzar. And and Nebuchadnezzar looks in, in the story of Daniel, and he goes, there's not three men there anymore, there's four. Because this promise in Isaiah 43 was coming to pass, that God will be with you through the trials of life. God was in the midst of that fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar recognised it and turned and tore down his idol and began to worship the living God. God was good to his promises. See, the promise of the Bible is not immunity from hardship and trial, but constant love, strength in and through trials. More than that, Jesus has walked through the river of death and absorbed all of God's fiery justice on himself as he hung on that cross. More of that in a moment. Now you're still wondering, I guess, these are, these are promises made 700 years before Jesus even came. But in the New Testament, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that, that, that all the promises that God makes in the Old Testament are, as it says, yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That is, what we're reading today in Isaiah was either fulfilled in what Jesus did or it points towards what he did. They're shadows of what he has done. So the point is that Christians here today can have total assurance that that we do not have to fear. Why? Because God has redeemed us and will be with us. But there's more than that. It's actually because he loves us as well. And quickly going on, verse 3, he says he ransoms his people. But verse 4, look at it. You are precious and honoured in my sight and because I love you. I love you, God says. The creator, all-powerful, sustainer of this universe, looks at his children and he thinks they're precious. And he loves those who trust him. My family used to own a car. It was called a Morris Minor. I don't know if you remember that. It was probably the worst car that British engineering had ever made. And it, it had no first gear. If you lifted up the carpet in the front... Um, near the pedals, you could actually see through the rusted undercarriage to the floor. 
It was absolutely an awful car. It was a worthless piece of junk. It was horrible to drive and horrible to look at. And yet, today, cars like that are collector's items. They're lovingly restored. And and people pay thousands of pounds for what I thought was a heap of junk. Let me tell you, I think today there are a whole heap of Morris Miners here. And I include myself in that. I mean, look at me. I'm essentially, metaphorically, a rusted piece of junk. Worthless, if you like, before God. But the point is this. He loves me. And, and, and has restored me to himself. And was willing to pay the ultimate price to restore me. Namely, giving his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Dying in my place. Verse 5 then again. Uh, those who trust in God, he says, do not be afraid. Because God is with you. But more than that, he's loved you. And he's, re- he's redeemed you. He's restored you. However worthless. Now the end of that section, verses halfway through verse 5 to verse 7, simply show that God's love knows kind of no boundaries geographically. He seeks out people from all the corners of the earth. God has saved his people through Jesus Christ in nearly every people group of the world now. And do you know how many translations of the Bible are in different languages? There are now over 2,600. Fear not, I have redeemed you and I love you wherever you are, God says. Second point, these get much quicker, don't panic, really don't panic at this point. Fear not, I am God and there is no other. We're looking here at verses 8 to 13. So the issue for Israel is that God is is not the only God at that point, God small g, that they are looking to. So God, having declared who he is and what he's done for us, God says through these verses, come on then guys, bring out the alternatives. Let's see what your so-called gods can do. Let's have a look at the alternatives. Let's consider if these things, these protections that you put around, these things that you worship and give you purpose and so on, see if they can save you. Let's have a look. Again, don't think this doesn't apply. The people may have here, they made idols of, of gold and uh, of wood and bowed down, but we, have all, we all have idols. Even an atheist has an idol. Because we all act as if something is our God. We sacrifice things for them. It could even be your family. We look to them to provide meaning for us in our lives. So the God of the Bible here is saying, come on then, guys, bring them out. Let's see what they can do. It's someone, it kind of resembles Israel's got talent at this point. It's like the voice with Will I Am, boom, you know, like he turns around. It's a battle, it's a sing-off at this stage. And the first contestant on this side of the stage is God himself, the living creator, sustainer God. And on the other side of the stage is this idol made of wood and metal. And the battle commences. The lights flick up. The presenter runs off the stage. And the the God of the Bible gives the stage to the idol. And there it happens. What happens at this point? Nothing. It's just a bit of wood. Just a bit of metal. That is what's happening in verse 9. If you, if you have a look at it, if you, if you, turn, to your, if you turn your back on God, the God of the Bible, who are you going to trust? You know, what have they done? Oh, as he says there, uh, which of the gods foretold the future? 
And what happens now is that God takes up the mic, if you like. And here comes his testimony in verses 10 to 13. God is saying to his people, "Your, your life story is my witness. You've seen me work for centuries. You know that I am truly God. And the story begins right back in it with Abraham and the promises that God made to them. And, and you get a sinful person, rebellious person, wicked person after wicked person. But what remains faithful is God. He never breaks one of his promises through the hundreds and hundreds of years. He's always good to his word and he's always been trustworthy. Look at verse 11 with me. It's so critical. It's the emphatic, I, even I. And the Lord, and apart from me, there's no other saviour. You are my witnesses, he's saying, that I am God. There's absolutely no competition here. And I guess my question here is to to all of us who are you going to trust? You might be trusting something for your life at the moment. That is, you know, your work. That's the thing that gives you purpose and meaning. And so, oh, your relationships, that gives you purpose and meaning. But who are you going to trust with your death? Fear not, I am God, and there is no other. Thirdly, fear not, I am God, and I bring you hope. Having looked back, now people causes people to look forward. And he's simply saying, in the words of Frank Sinatra, other way around, but the best is yet to come. Verse 14 to 17, it's all about the past. He looks back, he points back to all his work in bringing them out of slavery in the Exodus. But verse 18, he says, forget the former things. Look forward. They thought God had once been great, but that moment had passed. That's what they think. They're viewing God as a kind of a has-been. It's like a mid-30s premiership footballer. You know, it used to be good, but oh no, it's a bit slow now. You know, that kind of stuff. So God is essentially saying, get your eyes open. Once God worked in a desert to save his people, but he's saying, I haven't stopped working to save my people both then in the 7th century BC when this letter was written, uh, and now, and even now, there's a greater work, if you like, uh, bringing us to salvation for anyone who would trust in his son, Jesus Christ. The giving of his son, Jesus Christ, was not limited to a particular people group, but extends now to you and me. God is continuing to work. There is hope. But I think there's another point in these verses. Let me turn there very quickly. Because I do think even today we often limit God's work to the past and that potential work of the future when we meet God face to face. But what about today? Because that matters, doesn't it? That's why so many people say, God God is totally irrelevant to me and my work tomorrow when I'm sat at my desk at nine o'clock. But the point here is that the God of the Bible is not just in the past and in the future, but he is equally at work today through his church. In our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, he is still at work saving people. I remember a, a, a good friend of mine coming to me. Uh, they were from a Muslim background, very zealous Muslim family. They asked, can I read the Bible? And I said, yeah, read it. They read it. They saw Jesus jump out of them at the pages of the Bible and they were utterly, utterly transfixed. They knew the consequences. They were massive. Death threats and everything. But they said they wanted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Oh, I've seen bankers, uh, you know, very, very wealthy men who with absolutely no material needs, they drive cars which I would love. They have houses, yeah, I'd love. 
But I've seen men like that, friends of mine who have been drawn to tears as they've examined what Jesus Christ has done for them. And as they've trusted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. I've seen people who have come to me and say, our marriage is an absolute mess. In tatters. I've seen people humbly come and look at what God says about marriage and trust him and look for his help and guidance and trust him as Lord and Saviour and see their marriages restored. My friends, God is at work today. Today. As he may be in your heart right now. Here's a funny little thing to finish this point. Did you know that there are now more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party? That's because God is at work today. And the Chinese government have got no answers for it and they're absolutely bemused. However much they suppress it, it keeps growing. God is at work today, so trust him. Fear not, I am God and I bring you hope today. Last point, very quickly. Fear not, I am God and I bring you grace. God is reminding his people in verses 22 and 24, if they haven't come to him, to say sorry. And, and he'd given initiated rituals and sacrifices for them to do that. Symbolically, yes. What had they done instead? They heaped up sin after sin after sin. Look at verse 24. Is this you? You've burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offences. And then in verse 26 to 28, as we near the end of the passage, God is showing them that they have no defence. It's really, in a sense, it's kind of, wow, and condemning, and you're guilty. And we all are. And see, the story of the Old Testament, I think, is, is, is wonderful in, in, in this sense. It is not a bunch of guys and girls who are absolutely wonderful, skipping along, happy and good relationship with God the whole time. No, it is wicked person after rebellious person after sinful person. And there's some pretty awful, you might even say perverted people and abusive people. There is one hero in the Old Testament and it is God. And to our amazement, he uses people like that. He transforms people like that to bring about his purposes. And as the people come to God, as we, as we come to God today, there is only one ground for hope. And it's there in verse 25. I'm going to finish with this verse. I, again, emphatically, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And remember your sins no more. There is huge comfort here. For here we see that we are saved uh, to be with God by, and we say this, by grace alone. That is, we do not deserve this. We have not earned this. And undeserved grace can never be undeserved. Let me explain. That is, if we haven't earned our way to heaven, if it is all a work of God, then as we continue to mess up our lives, every Christian in this room will testify, oh, I've had a bad week, or I've, I've, I've not done exactly as I intended to, I've let God down. Yes, we do. Even if that's the case, it cannot undo that complete work of the grace of God. Therefore, we need not fear. Though sadly, uh, I keep sinning, uh, we all keep sinning. Our hope is in God's work. 
who blots out our transgressions, who takes the weight off your shoulders. And there are people here with huge weight on your shoulders and you just don't know what to do with it. Why would God do this for you? And here's the, here's the really interesting thing. He didn't. Oh, he loves you. But verse 25, he did it for his own name's sake. You see that? Did it for my sake, for my own sake, he says. See, there's nothing in me, there's nothing in you that warrants God saving you. But God saves us, loves us and keeps us because it honours him. It's actually very comforting if you think about it because you know that if you're a Christian, there are times when you look at your life and you wonder why, how, surely God can't possibly love me, save me, want to restore me. But the thing is, if you're a Christian, then you bear God's name. It's like it's stamped on your forehead and he's not going to allow his name to be dragged through the mud by anyone or by anything. And therefore he wants to protect, he wants to love, he wants to keep, he wants to redeem you, though you do not deserve it. And he does it for him, for his name's sake, for his glory, for his honour, which is your honour, because you bear his name. The point is, you are safe. You are his, you have hope. Conclusion, why do you fear? And what do you fear? If you fear God rightly, have an appropriate view of him, he says that you need not fear anything else. He has redeemed you. He has loved you. There is no other means to salvation. He brings you hope today and for tomorrow. And you do not earn this. This is a gift of grace. That's what we've looked at today. So look to the gift of grace. Who blots out all of our sins. And his name is Jesus. Trust him as your Lord and Saviour. And fear not. Let's pray as we close.